are listening to Cambridge Science. We like science. Okay, I'm going to need a better tagline. You're listening to Cambridge Science. Science can be fun or boring and useful, or it could be somewhere in between. I'm your host, Richard Reddy, but my friends call me Spanners, so let's be friends. You are listening on Cambridge 105 Radio or your podcatcher of choice. Cambridge Science is where fans of science like me Settle in for an hour's science news, interviews, and hopefully answer some of your science questions as well. Today, we're going to be talking about some of the science in movies and TV. And we have some of your feedback. So we have some listener comments about science on TV, what annoys them, what doesn't work, and which science rules we're allowed to break. Plus, I've got my own favourites too. To be clear, I'm not a scientist. I'm a science fan. I was going to say, I'm not a scientist. I play one on radio, but I never would. And I don't need to because I've got Dr. Andrew Holding here. Hello, Dr. Andrew. Hello, Spanners. You're a real scientist. Yes, I am. It happens at some point. You're a very serious person. And then I'm going to make you talk about lasers, phasers, teleporting, all that kind of thing. Yeah, let's go for it. As a serious science communicator, don't you ever feel that given we've probably done a 100 hours of content together across podcasts and radio, do you ever worry that the fact I make you talk about silly stuff in science as well is going to make people forget that you are essentially curing cancer? I mean, I, no, I do this research I do because I believe in it, because I'm interested in it. And then I come on shows like this and we get to talk to people and engage in things they find interesting. And you know, no one sits there going, your research is rubbish, but they may not want to hear my latest paper as it's published in an academic journal. Because I'll be honest, academic journals aren't the most exciting sometimes. Oh, see, don't say that to me, because we have been having some very lovely conversations with Cancer Research UK and with Cambridge University as well. So we are going to get researchers on to talk to us. And now here you are saying that plan is poor because everyone who does work like me is a dullard. Nice one. No, the people are exciting. The papers are boring. Don't don't read the journals. Get the people in. Get them excited. Like you can find people in Cambridge University who will spend an hour talking to you about the migratory patterns of moths, and they love it. I actually, yeah, well, I would actually be fascinated to know about the migratory patterns of of moths, and I'd want to know if it's a myth. There's this apocryphal tale of the evolution of moths, where they say, oh, there was white moths. And then the Industrial Revolution happened, and then some of them became black and covered in smog or something. And so those ones didn't get eaten by whatever eats moths. Dragons, I don't know what it is, only ate the white ones. So then they evolved that it was a, a, a an advantage to then be a black moth or something like that. And so I want to know if that tale is apocryphal or whether that really happened. That is the standard GCSE thing, right? There were two shades of moth. And because things got darker, we got a few more of the darker ones living the light ones, and it shifted the population. Um, we should probably get someone to talk about that, because I seem to remember recently there was a study that said it was like the theory sound, the idea sound, but when someone actually studied the populations, it, it didn't hold true. So it's one of these things, it was a little bit more complicated than we were told at GCSE. No, everything we got told in GCSE was a lie. I knew it. See, kids, just... Out and out, call out your teachers. No, no, you said this to me last week. It's about not just flooding kids with information and getting them to learn in- incredibly intricate microbiology and quantum physics immediately, 
You've just got to introduce it in a palatable way, which is kind of what you're doing here on Cambridge Science. You're making dum-dums like me feel like I have access to science. Exactly. We're just trying to make things accessible. (laughs) And, And, you know, you don't need to know everything about your car to drive your car, right? You need to know how to drive it, but you don't need to understand the thermodynamics of petrol burning in the engine or diesel burning in the engine. Just don't put the wrong fuel in it. You'll be fine. So when we speak to these researchers, they're not going to just sit there and regurgitate the the scientific paper that they're working on. You know, it's a, it's about the work and what about the work interests them. And so certainly I would love to hear about someone's study on the migratory patterns of moths, because presumably they'd have to go to where the moths are, which is somewhere exotic and exciting, like Darlington or something. I mean, we got to Google them now and find where they are. Where is our migratory moth expert? Um, Let's talk about the science uh, of movies and TV. And we have some listener feedback and stuff. But the reason I sort of started thinking about this was I'm watching the new Halo series. Are you a Halo fan? I have played the Halos 1 and 2, and I did watch a bit of a series on a plane once. Oh, man. So you've missed out. So Halo is a computer game, video game franchise, massive. And it's about a, a futuristic super soldier who's in this, you know, suit that integrates with him with an AI and stuff, and then they fight the alien baddies, right? And so 1 and 2 are pretty good, but you've missed out Halo 3's the best one. But now they've made a TV series about it. And it's so funny how I will be, you know, a fan of science, and I'm really quite picky about, oh, I hate it when they just ignore the science in movies and TV. But when it comes to my Spartan, electronically enhanced, AI-enhanced super soldier bouncing around defying the laws of physics suddenly i have no problem so so i was thinking to myself when is the lack of good science in a tv program a problem and when do we like allow it because harry potter that gets a free pass doesn't it in fantasy realm like no one cares what happens in harry potter but i mean harry potter is really bad for internal consistency right yeah, oh, like it's like you go one, you can read one story, I mean, like get to the next story. You're like, well, why don't they just use that time thing they had last week to get uh, like? It's they, yeah, it's not, it's, it's not maddening. the strongest of fantasy worlds. But they do that even within a f- one movie. So there's there was one movie I saw where they were fighting someone in a field, uh, and they all get captured or whatever, or one of them gets captured or one of them gets hurt, and then about half an hour later, they're surrounded by things crawling out of a pool and he just gets his wand out and he goes like, Magicus Solvacus, and the, all the creatures die and go, well, why didn't you, why didn't you Magicus Solvacus in the wheat field with the fire? And I just found it impossible to, sorry, Harry Potter fans, you're just wrong, that's all. So you're not a fan of the Harry Potter world? No, it's the, it's the consistencies that, that take me out of it. But like, because like you say, you can easily just go, oh, why didn't you do that last time? Why don't you use the thing? From the previous film, or when they suddenly have a really great spell, you go, did you just discover that? Did you just make that spell up? Because there's been three movies worth. Not that I've seen three movies. I think I gave up after one, to be honest. So what is an example of a sci-fi or a fantasy <laughs> that you like? Like, does so, Lord of the Rings count? Because Tolkien was obsessed no, with fantasy. Accuracy. Was he? Oh, what, is that the scientific representation of an orc? Well, he's, and he's a historian, complete... right? He spent, oh, he built languages. He tried to build a whole world in, but he did it very much from a historian perspective, right? He did it from the making a literature for his world. I and I like that when you've got good world building and everything works in that universe, and you have rules. 
So I think that's why the whole why didn't the Eagles pick them up storyline, why didn't the Eagles just take them to the Mordor in the first place? That's why that sort of thing got picked up, because if you've built this world where things kind of broadly work, then maybe it's jarring when something doesn't quite come together. But for I think a great example for, for people our sort of age, our sort of age, Andrew, is like Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah. So Star Trek The Next Generation, there's some things there that clearly you go, hmm, I don't know if that would be physically possible, but they stick to their consistent rules. So you can go at warp speed, and, and whereas our physical speed limit is the speed of light, sort of, and their, or is it? Yeah, it's, uh, their physical speed limit is like warp 10. So they've got their own internal speed limit, and then they have like transporters, they work in a particular way, tachyon beams just solve everything but they're they're clear with that like, oh how are we gonna beat the alien fire a spread of tachyon beams ah oh, okay phew the tachyon beams or reverse for polarity always reverse yeah. polarity. which if reverse. anyone has ever used anything with a polarity if you reverse it it generally stops working but you know in star trek it fixes everything yeah and everyone's surprised every time reverse the polarity oh i've never thought of that uh, that's a generic regional accent. If that sounded like a specific accent, total, total coincidence. But, you know, <laughs> things like, yeah, if you overcharge the warp core, it will explode. Phasers must be held still long enough with the CGI department to insert the line. But there is a, there are things that really annoy me in Star Trek. Like, why does every console have explosive and rocks behind it? Like, in any battle they have, they get hit. The shields get hit, which are meant to protect the ship. But the poor bridge person will be exploded in a pile of rocks across the bridge. And you usually have to jump in some dramatic fashion, and then they'll be like, drag that person off the stage and get a new actor for next week. Surely, if you have a shield system, your consoles, your buttons you're pushing, should not have the ability to explode, right? Like, nothing should be behind there that's explosive. The, 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 obviously, there's a, those things there are like dramatic, and you can get too picky. But I think with Star Trek, because they follow their own rules you can then still follow the storyline. The, the things I hate in storytelling are like in a detective series that my wife loves the detective series and the murder mysteries and things. And you're, I guess they're called whodunits, aren't they? And you're trying to figure out for about 50 minutes, go, oh, who did it? You know, oh, they're going around, they're questioning people, they're finding evidence. And then five minutes before the end, a new piece of evidence gets revealed that you couldn't possibly have known about. And that changes the whole plot. Whereas I feel like in Star Trek, you can work along with the team and try and solve the problems. And when they say, oh, yeah, we'll beam down with the tachyon reverse polarity generators and fire a phaser into the warp core, which will then explode, you go, yeah, yeah, that tracks. I, I probably could have come up with that myself. I think also Star Trek works really well because often the sci-fi is just an excuse to get to the situation to tell the story. So... They want to go to a different world, they want to have different politics, or they want to have something going on, and then they use the rules of their universe to get them there and make the story happen. So, you know, finding some planet has a shortage of, let's say, a mineral that they really need and how that affects planet. You can then play that speculative story building without worrying about the fact that you, if you did an Earth, you're like, well, why don't they have that? You know, it's just an alien planet. But the tools are just to get you there. I mean, it's why they do Fast in the Light, right? Because... There are series there, and there are stories where they go like, "We're not going to go fast and light." It's more often in books than oh. in movies. Uh, what's the What's the TV one so recently? Long. The Expanse, where it was all within the solar system. Well, 
until the end where they get the weird portal things. But yeah, oh, no, the expanse is a lot. Well, that's a spoiler. Um, it's like season one ending. Oh, I'm, is it? I, yeah. I, okay, so I have had trouble with the expanse getting through it. And it's a story about there's basically the belters. So there's some people who have been living in the asteroid belt for generations. And so they are not used to gravity. The people on Earth are, and they struggle when they go out to the belt. But because it was more realistic, you didn't have faster than light travel. It was just, uh, what do you call it? Fossil fuel, wasn't it? So, no, no. It, so it's, they have a particular, I think it's, they have a name for the engine. It's, it's a make-believe engine because oh, okay. when they fly, because you're right, there's the belters, there's Earth and there's Mars and probably a few other people. When they fly from one place to another, because they don't have artificial gravity, they fly at accelerating at 1G the whole way. So their acceleration is the same as how fast mm. you fall to the ground. When they get about halfway, they flip and then they slow down by burning the way. If you do that with fossil fuels, you'll get for a lot of fuel. So they have a make-believe right. engine that's hyper-efficient. Like that's one one of the conceits of the series. Okay, but they're consistent with that. Yeah, so that's why they flip. And, and there's really cool things they use it for, right? So if they're trying to track ships, because the ships have to slow down burning at 1G to keep gravity, they can track, they can look for the basically like mini stars in the sky to work out where ships are coming. And they make a whole thing about how if you want to go on some surprise, if you, you can't slow down straight at them, you have to go at a different angle so they can't see your engine and then burn in at the last moment. So they do a good job of having rules that they then work with and this idea of being able to track engines comes up time and time again because basically everyone's trying to not get caught by the other side in it so they have some things which are really strong so i like that so okay gravity that's a big thing so that's our first big thing we've got speed and gravity so on star trek they just have gravity plates so you go right basically that means that everything can be conducted as if we were just in an office. But it's, it is amazing how just readily we accepted, yes, a starship in the future will be broadly like a council building and everyone's just mulling around in, you know, pyjama-type clothes. But then you get, like, the big one, really, in sci-fi, where it usually jumps the shark is when they go in and start looking at time travel, right? Oh, we so, go straight to time travel. Well, it's always, like, Star Trek, Star... Well, actually, you know, Star Wars does have time travel now and some of the spin-offs uh marvel definitely has it and time travel is one of those things i think you really have to be consistent what your rules are so one of the big surprises to everyone is you can actually we do actually know how to do some time travel now well we can move forward in time by one second per second well but we can move forward faster right because you've come across the theory of relativity as you accelerate faster and faster time slows down for you so everything speeds up around you so if you built a spaceship flew really fast away from the earth and flew really fast back again time for you would have passed much slower than everyone else everyone be much older so if i wanted to fast forward let's say i just get fed up with this crazy old world and i go my radio career it's never going to go well maybe in a hundred years there'll be more opportunities so i need to go near the speed of light or go through a can't i go uh, into a gravity well as well so i can't go like really near a black hole yeah gravity applies in acceleration there's ways to do it there but if you get too near a black hole you're ripped to pieces so that's probably a downside to that option that will hold back my, my radio ability. Yeah, for sure. You might be slightly taller, though, Sam. Hey! Actually, no, I'm in. I'm willing, to, I'm willing to risk it. Yeah, no, I like that. So they always say if you send one twin off on a fantastic voyage, when he comes back, the twin will be younger. than. The... So is, like, is there a practical way to do it? Let's say if we could go faster than the... near to the speed of light and we discover that technology, one of the first things we can do is send volunteers 
essentially a thousand years into the future as a living record of our time. Yeah, and um, you know, people probably would. The challenge is, can you get the energy you need to maintain that acceleration and get to those speeds? Um, and the answer is, you know, we need other technologies we haven't got yet. But there's a lot of energy in the universe, right? The, the sun is making lots and lots of energy. But can we harness it? Can we store it? Can we get there? Um, there are physicists who have done the calculations. Some reckon that it is theoretically possible. But of course, the other problem is if you start then doing these big jumps into the future, things like the sun start to get old, right? You know, it's meant to be around for billions of years. But if you start doing thousand years at a time, that's eating into your future quite rapidly. So it, it's it's not necessarily going to be anything exciting. And of course, you could come back and find everything worse on the Earth. So it's not not that attractive option. I am also, I've been sucked in by the Star Trek future. So Star Trek to me is one of the most optimistic science fictions. Like humanity sorts it out. Yeah, there's a bit of a rough patch. There's some talk of World War Three, But broadly speaking, humanity nails it 400 years in the future. So I always think, yeah, let's go to the future. It'll be brilliant. But it could e- equally be a post-apocalyptic wasteland. But I think that's what's great about 90s sci-fi, right? 90s sci-fi was really optimistic today. You can't get a series out if it's not grim, dark, everything's terrible. But I, mean, I quite like the idea. We, we need more series to explore. What could we do? What would be a positive future? And as you say, you can have those challenges. We know there are scientific challenges. We know there are political challenges. How would you solve them? What would the world look like? with a unified world government. Would it be better or would, you know... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Is that, a, is that a political opinion that you're nearing? I don't know. Because I think I, we're not... I, I, but I think fiction and I think sci-fi, whether it's the science or whether it's the how the world is set up, I think that's where it does really, really well. And, you know, if you explore those concepts in fiction, it, it really is a good way to connect to people and get your ideas across. And I, I think... You know, we're talking about here in science communication. I think fiction serves a purpose on doing that and lots of things. And I really, I know why every TV series is like this grim, dark, depressing future. It's, it sells well. And yeah. little super happy futures is like, well, that's a bit boring. Yeah, a little bit. Anything that's like, if you say to me, there's a new movie out, it's a post-apocalyptic. Oh, stop, stop. Yes, yes, yes. Let's go. You know, I'll watch anything that's a post-apocalyptic wasteland, which is the worst case scenario. So I don't know why. I don't know why I do that. But time travel is done badly in every single movie. It's never done well. I'm trying to uh, think if there's a, a really a good time travel story where they make good rules for the time travel. Because nearly any time you go back in time, that wrecks it. So nearly every time you go back in time, that creates a paradox. Something doesn't work. And it just takes you out of it way, way too much. The problem is, like, is this idea of the butterfly effect, right? The fact that if you go back in time, you make a small change... The whole system's chaotic, and you have no idea where it's going to end up. A lot of sci-fi works on this idea that if you go back in time, it's always like a rhythm and it keeps flowing back to where it was, but we have no evidence of that. But they need that, right, because they need you to be born in the future. Where reality is, you sneeze, you probably pass a cold on someone, which means they don't turn up to work one day, and before you know it, you huge weren't born. chaos erupted. Yeah. Um, the one movie that tackled that quite well was The Butterfly Effect where he kept going, he went back in time and then he basically ruined his 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 present, but he had to deal with those consequences. So he went a little bit further back, tried to fix it, ended up getting his arms and legs blown off. And then when he got to the present, he was in a wheelchair. And I think that's one of the ones that m- made more of an attempt to say, yeah, actually what you do in the past has real, real consequences. 
but but normally the ones where you go back in time they're just they're horrible and they don't they don't work so i think i would class those as fantasy but for forward time travel a recent example is interstellar with matthew mcconaughey where you know when they went on a planet near a, a gravity well or they went fast they were losing time so they were doing what we were talking about earlier going forward in time and their children on earth uh, were getting older and older although apparently he only seemed to care about one of the children but uh, but yeah that kind of time travel that was really fascinating and well done yeah that, and that movie's great one of the things they have is the black hole right with the dish of dust falling into it glowing and because the gravity's bending light it sort of gives you this weird bent up ring the ring looks like it actually wraps up behind it so if you ever look at a picture of it they spend a lot of effort getting that right the thing that bugged me about that though is they land on that planet with the giant waves yeah and there's a time dilation yet they seem surprised by the time dilation as if a physicist wouldn't have sat there and worked out for them already like no one thought you know we're in a gravity well it's going to affect time all these things are like oh We've, it's, it's it's much more delayed than we expected. That was the one, yeah. So they did ex- predict some time dilation, but yeah, it ended up being like 20, 20 years or something like that. So the, the ship they found, which they were chasing after because there's the people who gone ahead of them, literally it had seen the wave before they were there, not failed over 20 years. And it, yeah, it, that frustrated me because someone should have been doing a better job on that day. Someone should have been predicting that. I like that we found the first one that's that's upset you. So in a film that you like there's still something that made you as a scientist sit up and go, oh, for goodness sake, why couldn't it have just been... Well, what did you want? You wanted them to say on the ship, oh, it's going to be... You're going to lose 20 years here. And then they go, yeah, it's a good idea. Let's not do that. I just want them to be competent at their jobs, right? These are meant to be the best and brightest they got together. Well, I wasn't quite sure how Matthew Connor became the best and brightest. He seemed to be a complete reckless person who everyone was mad at. But for some reason, he ended up on there. But it's a... I mean, overall, I like the movie. And it has... The other thing they do there is i think towards the end they go through the event horizon of a black hole you're like no because that's like literally like nothing escapes the event horizon it's not it's not going to work and and then he gets to have visions of the past or something so it also does that thing that's going like we just pop into fantasy for a moment yeah yeah. it broke it broke it broke down at the end with that and black holes are are badly named i think because it's not a hole so you think of it as a hole a portal Whereas it's hard to really visualise. Am I right in thinking it's basically just so much stuff that the gravity is really high and so nothing can escape even light? But it is basically just still a huge lump of stuff. Yes, but it's a little bit more subtle than just being a lump of stuff. So as stars get really, really heavy and collapse at the end of their lives, depending how big they are, depends what happens. So you can get them just being a cloud of warm gas that's quite dense. That's one option. If they get to a certain weight, they then sort of collapse past that and end up being what comes a neutron star. And a neutron star is where the gaps between the atoms have basically squished out. And it's almost like the whole star is one atom. It's just neutrons stuck together because electrons and protons, when they get forced together, start doing weird physics. It's a massive atom. So it's basically like you have gravity holding that. So it's immense. And neutronium, which is what a neutron star would be made of, basically neutrons, would be one of the densest materials you've ever found. But you wouldn't be able to get there to touch it. Now, only because you squish if you went near it, right? The gravity's so high. Um, black hole's one step past that, where the gravity is so high that that has then collapsed again. And when that collapses again, what's happening is you're breaking most of the physics rules we know, and you're getting what's called a singularity. So all the neutrons have ended up on top of each other at a single point. So at that point, the thing which really makes black holes 
as impressive they are in terms of gravity is not so much the fact they're really heavy. Like, the sun could not, by its mass, it's not got the capability, but in you know you could take the mass of a sun in a mass question and can press it down to be a black hole where all the atoms are on the same spot. Yeah. It would still have an event horizon because it's not the fact that it's really, really heavy that's the main thing that causes this gravity well. It's the fact it's very, it's all the mass in a point. When you say point, though, what do you mean? Do you mean literally like a pinhead or even smaller than a pinhead? So the word singularity means literally the same, all, everything is at one point in the universe. Well, I don't think that's possible. Well, that how can this. that be possible? Well, because the gravity is so high, the atoms are compressed, broken the, what we normally consider about holding them apart. So, so how big is a black hole then? I could fit it in my hand. It's, it's infinitely small. I don't, I can't imagine that. <laughs> so, so, yeah. It, well, it, we're getting to the point where actually, you know, normal rules don't apply, right? So you, if you found a smart, someone who does this for a career, they go, oh, no, 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 it's, I'm going to give a real complicated answer. Mm. This is the simple answer, I'm eye brain <laughs> Um But the, the, the thing is, it's, it's that, if you think of the rubber example, have you ever seen these rubber sheets where they talk about gravity yeah. and then you put like a bowling ball in the middle, which is the sun, it stretches down. Yeah, so well, if something of, tries to roll past it, it gets drawn into the gravity well. Yeah, so the bigger the ball, if it's like a lighter big ball, it bends the rubber less, right? Because it doesn't put the pressure all in one point. If you can imagine the black hole is like the massive ball, but all compressed down to the smallest dot, and you put it in and just literally the rubber just goes down in the middle. That's what is isn't. And the, it's what defines the gravity is that slope, right? How f- can you run yeah. up that slope? So obviously if it's a gentle slope, you can run out of the hole, but it gets near vertical right in the middle. And that, when it gets to the point that basically light can't get fast enough to get up that slope, that's the event horizon. And that's why they're black, is because at the event horizon, no light can escape bar some very complicated Hawking radiation theory. Um, and then the, you do see a glow, and the glow is as things are falling into the black hole, they're, they're accelerating so much, they give off light. So that's why you see these sort of rings and things. But the actual black hole... Like, pretty much nothing can escape. I think it's still a lump of stuff. I, I petition officially to have them called black lumps. Oh, no, well, Captain, it's a black lump. I think that would do. I think that would work. Time to remind people what they're listening to. You're listening to Cambridge Science on Cambridge 105 Radio. And it's a podcast, too. So you can, if you've just joined us now... You've missed the worst bit, so don't panic too much. It's going to get substantially better from here, probably. The next thing I want to talk about is uh, teleportation in Star Trek, right? But just as an admin note, Andrew, because, you know, it is a podcast and it is on radio. So if people have joined us halfway, they're like, why are these incredibly handsome sounding young dynamic gentlemen talking about black holes and stuff? Well, it's because... You're listening to Cambridge Science, where we talk about science from a, a fan point of view, really. I'm a science fan. Dr. Holding is also a science nerd, but he's got a PhD in uh, biology. No, chemistry. Chemistry. But I'm you do biologist. biology as a job. Yes. I, don't think that, I don't think that should be allowed. I think you should have had to have done a biology PhD. Do you want to go back into another one? I don't know. I've never done anything. I left school as soon as they'd let me. Actually, that, that's a movie thing that really annoys me, is... Quite often, like, if they want to say someone's really smart, they've got five PhDs is a thing that happens in movies. Nearly no one does more than one PhD, because you don't need to. You do the PhD, and then if you want to switch to a different research field, so if you do a PhD in maths and you decide, you know what, I want to look at the evolution of frogs, you just go get a job looking at the evolution of frogs, saying, look, 
I'm going to use my maths to do this. And I'll be like, do you know about frogs? And I'll be like, no, but I'll work with you, Mr. Frog Expert. You tell me about the frogs, I'll do the maths. And I'll be like, that's cool, because you're really smart on... Like, that's how it works. It isn't like, oh, no, now you have to do another PhD on frogs. Because it doesn't matter. Stop Stop what you're doing. Yes, you're right. We do want to learn about the frogs. But first, do a frog-based PhD. So that's how you're able to... I suppose once you've got a PhD in, in chemistry, people will say, well, you're quite good at science and managing science teams and stuff. Well, PhD, you're obviously managing yourself, right? So it, it, it's a you work as you're quite low in the rung of the team. You, you're starting out. It certainly feels that way having, when I did one. Um, but yeah, the point is you, you've got through it. You've finished a project. You've pulled the evidence together. You know the process. And then, yeah, you, you build up from there. There are obviously shifts you couldn't do. I wouldn't try and do a PhD, or, like go and do a research project on black holes, because I have nothing to add to that theory. But if I was really, really interested in black holes, and I decided I really want a career and change to black holes, it's probably somehow doable out there without doing a PhD. There might be a few questions asked. Like I'd probably have to do something adjacent to black holes and then eventually sneak my way in. Okay, we, before we get to some of the, the listener sci-fi things, I've still got a bit on Star Trek because yeah. uh, teleporters actually annoy me. So the teleportation is a very easy device to get people from one place to another. But I, I would ask you first, do they, do they, would they work? Is it possible? But... I think that when you go into a teleporter, you die, and then they just build another version of you. So you're just dead. So so much so that when about 10 years ago, they started talking about maybe there was a possibility of having real teleportation. Maybe they teleported one atom or something. And I got my wife to agree there and then. So we have agreed that we will never use a teleporter because basically you're dead. So if she uses a teleporter, that person that teleports out the other side isn't my wife and i'm legally free Uh, that's it i don't even need a divorce because she's gone so quantum teleportation that thing you see in the press go we teleport an atom yeah that's that's like that's weird it's quantum mechanics stuff it totally is not the star trek teleport it it gets sold as exciting really it's about quantum numbers like just don't worry about if you want to find out more it's fantastic stuff but no, 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 I want to find out to... more now. So when they teleported an atom, did they actually move one atom from one place to another? So one set of subatomic particles in the form of an atom from Bristol to Sheffield. More they took all the information about one atom and made the other atom look like that atom. So it's a fax machine. Yeah, but a really, really clever one. Yeah, and that's what I think the Star Trek teleporters are basically a fax machine. So they've got all these transport clone zombies going around in Star Trek. Well, Star Trek like depends on the episode, right? I think they, they try and reinvent it a few times. And let's not forget, the reason it's there is because it's cheaper than flying a shuttlecraft down with special effects in the 1960s. <laughs> yes, I suppose so. Um, actually, I think it's even more than that. They hadn't even built the prop yet. The, the prop only turns up in, like, episode whatever. Um, but the, the way I last remember seeing some explanation of this was they dismantle you into a bunch of atoms. They then send those atoms through some kind of wormhole and then rebuild you at the other end using those atoms. So you're meant to be the same person, but you have been, like, blended in the middle. Yeah. So in the same way, though, I don't have very many atoms in me that are the same from 10 years ago, right? All my skin cells have died. Everything's rotated and shuffled. I've eaten an apple, and the bits of that apple are now me somehow. So I just feel like even if you rip my atoms apart, 
and then put together those same atoms. I don't think that's me either. You've, you've pulled my brain apart. So you've built a new brain out of the bits of me and put the same information in there. So I still don't think that's me. And then they have episodes where like, they accidentally copy Riker. Oh, yeah. So, and that, so clearly, where did they get the spare atoms from? And that kills it, doesn't it? Where they have, so uh, Commander Riker gets rescued from a mission. One part of him, it goes into the, the transport buffer pattern thing and gets left on the planet and abandoned. And then one joins the Enterprise crew and carries on. And then they get reunited later. So that, that, that shows that because there's two versions of him, that is Star Trek saying, yes, we do basically do a fax and everyone who's ever been teleported is dead. I'm very passionate about this. They're just going Here's around. Here's a question for you. Here's a good... What would you do if you could get transfer your brain into a robotic brain? Though? Oh, man, I think about this way too much. <laughs> I've actually thought about this way too much because I would like to live a thousand years. That would be great. That, not greedy. Don't need eternity, but I think I would like a thousand years would be great. So my here's my thinking. If you just copied my brain and put it into a robot, then you've basically killed me and you've made a copy of me. But my thinking is if you do it gradually enough, if you replace like 5% of my brain or add an extra bit, and then my consciousness and my thoughts start developing into that, and then do that slowly over 50 years eventually you could replace my flesh brain and I'd have the robot brain and that would essentially be me. And I'd be, I'd be happy with that, that that was me and I'm alive. But this is a, like a really important thought experiment, right? If I make a device that replaces a neuron, say every time a neuron in your brain dies, a yeah, robot yeah, yeah. will replace it. You're like, yeah. I'm chill with that. But if I say, well, no, no, what we've got to do is copy your brain. So for a moment, there'll be two, two of you. And then we'll just dispose of the old organic <laughs> yeah, version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just killing You're you. You're saying like, no, no, I, I can't cope with there being two of me. Same way in saw Star Trek, is it killing a person? What makes you, for a lot of us, it's, it's our consciousness, right? It's our continuity of thought. Yes. It's like, if you go to sleep and wake up in a robot body, it's, it would feel like you. It would be a bit weird. It's not happened to anyone yet, so we're kind of safe there. But it is what defines what you are is, is a question that is asked by many people. Obviously, it's easier if you believe in a soul which I've gone back and forth on. But if you believe you have an eternal soul, then obviously this is a non-issue because your soul would somehow enter the robot brain as well. Or if you were being teleported, they presumably your soul gets teleported. So if that's the spirit of you, but if you don't believe in a kind of soul, then I think that the only way to transfer you would be very, very slowly. That then begs the question, am I the same person as I was as a 20-year-old now that I'm 43? Because... Everything has been replaced. We, that, basically, what we've talked about has happened. But instead of being shuffled into a robot body and brain, I've been slowly replaced by this decrepit middle-aged man instead, whose knees don't work. It's not your fault that the decrepit middle-aged man took your, yeah, uh, took your brain. It's, I mean, who we are is such a fascinating question. And it is one that, as far as I'm aware, there is no good answer on. But, yeah, I mean... Well, for all intents and purposes, you know, what ha- what happens when you go to bed in the evening and wake up in the morning? We're talking about continuity of thought, right? That, that lets you know you're me. We have this bit where we just randomly go unconscious during the day. I hate it. I can't stand it. <laughs> I actually, no, I actually can't stand that you go f- fall asleep and that you're not in control and that your brain can take you on. A, I have the most vivid dreams, right? And which is weird because I've, I've got like that anfantasia where I can't visualize anything in my brain. Yet when I'm asleep... 
full movie virtual reality pictures. I, I'm literally there in whatever scenario my brain creates. And I go to sleep knowing that soon I will be convinced that I'm wherever my brain has concocted me to be. And then as I slowly wake up, there's a moment where I just don't know. I'm just not sure. Like, which one is the real... That's how intense and vivid my dreams are. And I hate it. I hate that being out of control. To the point that, like, I will delay going to sleep because I go, I'm not ready. I'm just not ready for any of that nonsense. And it's not like it's particularly harrowing or haunting. It's just that it's so hyper-real and it could be anything. Just, Just terrified of the intensity of your own dreams. Yeah. No, no, they're really vivid. They're just so like, and, and do you know what? A lot of them are really admin heavy. So like I have like really admin heavy dreams where I go, well, how are you going to get the chicken across the river without the fox eating the hamster on the other side? Do you know what I mean? And he's, I really have to like think these things through and I wake up thinking, feeling like I've done a whole day's project management. What, what I love with those kind of dreams though, where you get an admin heavy dream, is not the admin obviously, but it's when you like sit there and you go, I've got to get the fox, the chicken, and the grain or whatever it is across the river um but then something like which is totally outrageous because the dream will be as well like oh and the dinosaur which is it's just it's just turned up and said hi and and, and speaks three languages and you'll be doing this and you'll be going why, why is this not working why is it and, and then you wake up and go didn't i click that the dinosaur was a bit of a giveaway yeah. this thing's not real like no you, you just accept it and it's i mean dreams i think dreams are absolutely fascinating insight into just how where the brain is. Yeah, I, I know that, yeah, there's always a clue when I'm waking up and you go, yeah, dream me just could not figure that out, whereas it feels sort of simple now. Um, but I do often have, you know, a good few minutes where I'm sitting there going, okay, that thing I was, I'm really stressed about didn't happen. It, that's fine. Like that thing I'm really stressed about right now, that conversation that happened in my dream, and I get that sense of, whew, thank goodness. So I wonder if it's my dream warning me, you know, don't have that kind of conversation. All right. We've got some uh, listener sci-fi things. So let's see. Uh, You might like this. This is from Stephen, who says, considering I work in a lab, these are fairly specific to me. Now, that's a good point, because all of us, if you see something in a movie that is from your trade, you go, you're far more likely to get upset by it. So Stephen says, I work in a lab, but sometimes watching things like CSI, the amount of times people put something in a centrifuge and then the next shot is a printed-out set of results. Irritates me no end. Also, the vast amount majority of buffers used in labs are colourless and not a rainbow of different colours. As a science man, uh, Andrew, this must get to you as well when you just see, like, the magic... <sighs> magic science machine solves everything. Magic science machines. Like, because things take forever in science. But, like, it would be easy if we just went beep, got results. It never works away. It's a little bit different, of course in forensics because they generally have a machine set up to do one thing and it does it well it's still not like there's no way the guy just walks in the lab throws the hair and gets results because like that would be totally non-controlled you get contamination it'll probably come out and say it's the cat from down the road i do remember i was watching an episode i think it was csi uh where they used a mass spectrometer and i was working with the same one at the time it got but as the camera panned round, you could see through the air grills all the light shining through because they got the box of one but it had nothing in it. So I was just seeing again, I can see through that. That's just a, that's a dummy. That's a dummy. Um, that's interesting. It's not a real machine. And, and that's why I don't get too annoyed about coloured buffers, right? Because it's like buffers, what we mean here is the liquids you use right. when processing biological samples, not what trains drive up to. And um, yeah, like there's a, there's a few. There's a few pink ones in the lab. Do have some kind of nice. But um, 
if you're filming someone transferring a clear liquid from one tube to another, which frankly, a large amount of my life I spent transferring incredibly small amounts of clear liquid from one tube to another. That's just your cocktail bar. That's just, no, that, that's larger volumes. Right, <laughs> Roger. We're yeah, microliters, look- not like <laughs> if I gave you a microliter of your favorite tipple, you, you'd look at me quite sad and going, is there anything in that That wouldn't work. Yeah, um, so, yeah, it wouldn't look particularly exciting to see you. I'm, I don't want to be rude, but I don't think I'd want to watch you at work all day, Andrew. I mean, I, it, it, would, it would be a weird experience having someone just standing staring at me. Slowly pouring clear liquid from one beaker to another. Okay, so we'll give it artistic license there. Thank you very much for that, Stephen. Stuart has uh, done one that infuriated me the second I watched it, and it took me out of the movie, right? Indiana Jones and Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, which I think was like the first new- of the newer Indiana Joneses. He survived a nuclear blast inside a fridge. So yep, A, the do. fridge protected him from the blast, and B, the fridge flew quite a long way in the air, and it landed. But because he was in a fridge the movie decided he was fine and he just rolled out of the fridge. But he would die. Yes. Wait, and, the, and the other thing was it was a lead-lined fridge. Was it? Yeah, so when he opens it, it says lead-lined. It's like, is that actually... Like, I genuinely don't know. Do lead-lined ex- fridges exist? Are, are mm. they a thing? I, I don't believe they are. But someone could correct me. There could be a fridge expert out there. And I'll stand correct. So that, the idea being lead, very dense metal, blocks certain types of radiation, does not stop fire of death like if it's very high temperatures it's the same yeah. as like <laughs> still get hot if you're in a metal box and you heat it up the thing in the box gets hot too right there it's a conductor it's not like an insulator uh and then you're right yeah he flies and it, like if you were so far from the blast zone you just saw like the fridge fall over and it's all rocked back and forth maybe we could believe it's right because it was stopped with like all the bits of wood because it was like one of these test sites wasn't it so yeah it was, so you like, could be protected from shrapnel and stuff but not from the speed of the, the impact. So Didn't even go like 50 metres in the air? Oh, yeah, it flew. It fully just flew. And so as it hit the ground, like your internal organs would still, you know, be going at the speed the fridge was flying, except you'd suddenly stop, and that would cause you a lot of problems. Well, the fridge will stop, and then you'll hit the fridge. Is that, how, is that like the same in a lift? Is that why if a lift is falling, you can't just time your jump? Well, <laughs> If you time the jump right just before the end, you jump relative to the lift. So if the lift's falling at five meters per second, and you I don't know what a human can jump up with, probably one meter a second at most. When you hit the floor, if you jump up at just the right moment, you're going to hit the floor at four meters per second, which is still most of that speed. So that's the problem. It's, it's a relative jump. It's not like if you jump on something moving downwards, you cancel all upwards motion. It just cancel it just works relative to the thing dropping. Also if you try jumping up, you'll find because the thing's moving away, actually quite often you just can't get the jump to work. But that's a whole extra level of challenge. But if you're in the fridge, yeah, so the thing that will, will, will kill you is that the fridge stops, but you don't. I mean, the equivalent is, because I reckon that fridge from the video was doing about 20 miles an hour, right? Maybe more? No, I don't know. It's more. I think it's reaching near terminal velocity. Well, I don't know what terminal velocity is a fridge. For you fridge, calculate that. It's 162 miles an hour. For a fridge? It might be, with a person in it. A fully laden African fridge. 
That's a Monty Python joke. I don't think it's going to um, translate well. Not a European one. Right. Not a European fridge, yeah. It was American. Right, anyway. Um, yeah, so just think of like being in a car without a safety belt. That was all I was going to say. And even at 30 miles an hour, right, if you crashed into a brick wall, you're not going to be a happy person. I've crashed into a brick wall at a, a good bicycle speed. What's a good bicycle speed for a 14-year-old on a mountain bike, slightly downhill? You can get Jacking. bikes can get pretty quick, right? 13, 15 miles an hour, something like that? 15, I could believe you. Yeah. Maybe. So then, uh, so this is my dad. So this is just saying I have experience of cycling into a brick wall, which it's alarming how often I'm able to say things like that. But I just, I seem to, I just have this very specific example. My dad decided to race me in a car. He said, you get a head start, race me, I'll go in the car, I'll meet you there. And so as I saw him overtaking me on the road, I was like, right, quick, I've got to mount the pavement so I can take a shortcut. No helmet, nothing, summer, shorts and T-shirt, into a chain, and then I flew into a, a brick wall, shattered my arm completely and was, was unconscious. So, so that even at like 15 miles an hour, that caused some serious damage like that was you know life affecting damage i missed camp and everything so yeah 30, 30 miles an hour into a brick wall i don't fancy that i see why you have fear of an unconscious state now oh maybe that is is that what did it <laughs> no i've always i've Not always psychoanalyzing your radio but yeah oh, no don't don't do that but it i mean that actually brings us to something else right because you mentioned no helmet uh, yeah. you know no, no protection and every so often i see these internet things where people go I grew up in whichever, you know, the 80s, We 70s. never had helmets. We, we never had this. And we all, look, we're all okay. And it's like, yes, there's a phrase no. this, right? It's survivor bias. But people who didn't make it aren't on Twitter. That's <laughs> just like, or other social media. That's with so much stuff with like health and safety. Oh, yeah, well, what happened well, before we had this? Well, loads of people died. But that reminds me actually of another movie trope. Because during that incident where I went into that brick wall, I was briefly unconscious. And it's actually, it's, it's amazing. You never are unconscious for, the, for as long as you think. So it's, it, most being knocked unconscious is quite quick. And then I came to and, you know, and then, you know, all the pain. But in movies, you know, you'll be hit with the butt of a rifle and then you're unconscious for four or five hours. But I think you would have to be seriously, like, concussed. Like, even brain damage wouldn't need to be out for that long. Yeah, the, the idea of a non-lethal takedown, right? I mean, yes, you've worked. One, in, yeah. You've you've had military experience. It doesn't exist to get people aren't that easy to knock unconscious. They, the evolution has made your skull quite. And, and if you do knock on someone unconscious, they're, they're they're conscious again relatively quickly most of the time, or never again. Sure, like like it, it's like concussion is not a joke, right? You'd be so. Yeah, it's it's not a case that you can punch people in the head and make them go down. I know you you know you see these videos of people where they walk up someone, give them a hook right on the temple, and the person drops immediately. It's an internet thing. But they do kill people, and they get arrested for it. It's not a safe thing to do, and people shouldn't be doing it for fun and laughs. It's a stupid idea. But, yeah, don't. it's not good to be te- making people unconscious. It's quite hard, and it does a lot of damage. But it's a big movie story plot that you can be rendered unconscious and be transported several miles and then wake up. and then. But the thing, the thing that makes it super unrealistic is, say you come to eight hours later, you're not going to then just, you know, brush off your pants and <laughs> just brush the dust off and now go, get back in the fight. Like, if something, is it right in thinking, if you've been rent, if you've been hit hard enough to be rendered unconscious for a significant amount of time, the recovery then is going to be also significant. Well, you, memes concussion, right? You're going to be 
dizzy, vomiting, all the other stuff. If you, yeah, it's it's not an easy thing. It's and you see a lot. On, the other one is people wake up in a hospital in a movie and immediately rip all the drips out of their arm. <laughs> yeah. It's like no way would I just like may, maybe I'm just squeamish. I don't think I'm squeamish about needles, but there's no way I am just ripping uh, medical devices out of my body. It's just like that sounds like it's going to hurt, and that sounds like a really really bad idea but yeah many times i'm in a hospital i don't know where i am i'm going to pull this out and i'm going to escape because they're clearly a bad hospital doesn't happen hmm. let's do a last one then from from ej who says he think the movie thing that makes him annoyed is laser weapons being very un laser like now, we've only got a, a few minutes left dr andrew i had a feeling that if we talked about science in movies and tv the time was going to fly by so yeah because uh, you know you got your laser pen at home that you have your cat chasing. I I don't and and there's a new British military weapon apparently as well where you can shoot things down with a laser. I have no idea what a laser beam is, how it works, and how you would use it as a weapon. I mean, it's coherent light, right? <laughs> Tell me, are you to, what's coherent light? Uh, so, it, you know, you get waves like little waves in the sea, right? So coherency is about those waves being in phase, so working together. So. A, a laser, laser for a bad metaphor. It's like you know when you push a swing, you want to make sure we get the time right to get the amplitude, make it mm. all work together. That, lasers kind of work like that. They're a weird state of light, I and mean, then you get these very tight, very controlled beams. And yeah, no laser pointers don't do a huge amount of harm. Though if you get some cheap ones off the internet these days, you can blind people because they aren't very well regulated and they're a bit bright, and retinas don't like them. But what what sort of you're thinking about movies? Yeah, it's like they go pew pew, right? And they yeah, <laughs> big noises and booms, and ignoring the fact that there's no sound in space, right? Because there's no air to carry the noise. So yeah, no lasers are often seen as like an effective weapon, and actually bullets work really well because you're trying to. Com- I mean, at the end of the day, a gun, whatever it is, is trying to get energy from where you are to through the object you're trying to do. Like so, kinetic energy in the case of a bullet hits an airplane, puts a hole through it, maybe hits something important. This is why. There's two ways to make a bullet better, right? You make get kinetic energy, you make it faster, so that gives it more energy, or you make it heavier, so that's why you get things like depleted uranium bullets, because they're really heavy. But the challenge with weapons is a bullet has to fly from where you are to where you want it to go. So why lasers are attractive is light goes really, really fast, right? Right, so speed. So what these weapons, as far as I can remember, I don't work in the military, I work in a biology research lab, um, but my understanding is what they're really trying to do is because when you want these missile defense systems or presumably drone defense systems you want to be able to get the thing before it moves out of the way so the idea is the laser puts enough heat into that thing before it gets to you and of course the advantage there is the laser gets to where it's targeting so as long as you can track it with really good optics you can hit it and then there's other things they do so there's ways to make lasers using chemical reactions whole host of other ways to make really high power lasers so you're trying to do a really short burst they can't like stay on in the way your laser pointer does because they burn out, but they do get the energy into that thing quickly and blow it up. And the other reason to use this is missiles, so these anti-missile missiles that chase missiles down, as you well know, are expensive. Lasers are not. They're not? See, that was the first thing I was going to say. It sounds expensive to make well, that laser. The laser, my understanding is the laser unit itself is very expensive. But you're not firing a missile, right? And I don't know what a missile costs. They're millions of pounds, aren't they? Each of these um, well, I would say currently, yeah, you might be talking a million a pop to shoot shoot an aircraft. And then you might have to shoot a volley to get past all the countermeasures. 
So you could be talking about at the press of a button, eight, 8 million, 12 million to try and hit one target. Whereas, you know, if someone's then firing loads of cheap drones they bought off the internet and they've just wired up with a cheap, dodgy thing to hurt you, you don't want to be spending millions to take them out, right? You want to keep that for when the big bad thing's coming. But you need to take the thing down because otherwise you're going to have a drone hit you. Well, EJ, incorrect challenge then. Is that the first incorrect uh, bit of feedback? Because that well, is I, quite... I, will we look back in 100 years and go, yeah, actually, those lasers were pretty... Yeah, we've got those now. I think we're going to see more lasers because they have benefits. But I don't think all the other stuff's going to go away, right? Because, you know, missiles can take a really large payload with them. They're going to stay. They're going to get smarter, more complicated. I mean, when you start talking about drones, we have the little ones are saying you buy off the internet and they use those now to do stuff and you see that happening in the world right now. But we also have a US drones, which size of like small aircraft. They have that drone space plane that they just put back up in orbit, the X whatever. You know, there's going to be loads of stuff. And hopefully all the bad stuff disappears and we just have that utopia we're talking about because, you know. Yeah, Star Trek utopia. Did I tell you about the little mini drone I got with my son? Did we, you get we, a mini drone? They're great yeah. fun. Right? It's quite a good one for Christmas, but like still definitely a mini one, not a full on, you know, big pilot drone that you need a license for. But still, we went out, we flew it in the field super high and got some really great footage. And then I was telling my friend about it and he sent me the current laws on drones. And I that I'm going to stop there because I've been specifically warned that I should stop admitting crimes uh, live on radio i've done it way more than i should have done uh, but if you're gonna fly the drone go and look at the current rules and restrictions for flying drones because there's actually there's a there's a lot of them yes yeah now i've flown a few drones mine was over because it was an older one over that is it 250 kilogram limit it was like one gram over right no no i did very much hungry uh, no there you go but, hey look i don't want to put people like ej off of, of getting in touch with this at the moment i'm using the email address at spanners ready at gmail.com. That's not how email addresses work, is it? <laughs> SpannersReady at gmail.com. And if you do the subject line Cambridge Science or Science, if you want to respond to anything that we've spoken about, I will I'll put it in a special folder and we'll have feedback sections. We'll return to topics further down the line and we would love to get your feedback and interaction. And you can follow Dr. Holding by searching for Andrew Holding on Twitter. That's where yep. you tend to hang out. You've got a gaming stream as well. Yes, Thursdays on Twitch, get Andrew Holding, and we play games. We talk with your friend Matt about science and rant about things in the game that don't fit what real science should be. There a bit harder on some games, like some things are definitely in the fantasy realm and not trying, so we, we, there you go. But we, we see where it goes. It's a great live discussion, and it's nice to be interactive. And, and if sure, you- if, if you disagree with any of the science I've given in this show, I'm probably wrong. Uh, I don't, certainly we, don't have a physics degree. Just complain at me at Twitter because it will make great content. So. <laughs> no, 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 do, do email us. We'll definitely, we'll always address. If there's any corrections, don't take any of this as fact. If there's corrections, we'll always loop back around and talk about why you were so sure and so stupid, Dr. Holding. And if, um, if, if I say it, definitely don't regard it as fact. I was once corrected on air for forgetting that orcas had menopause. So, you know. It happens. Let's hope that that specific one then doesn't come up again. If you want more spanners, you can follow me at Mr. Apex F1 as well. We do a Formula One podcast and hopefully I will be back here next. I think it's Thursday. Next Thursday, 6 p.m. Repeated Friday, 2 p.m. Until we see you next. Work hard, be kind and have fun. This was Cambridge Science 